What's up, guys? This is Jim, your favorite Delco gutter rat, coming to you from the Great Cigars Podcast. First episode being recorded at the Wooden Indian Tobacco Shop in the Liga Pravada Lounge. So, to start off this episode, before I get into the nitty-gritty, lovely, fantastic of it, we got to go through our usual ritual of the two best noises in the world. So, here is your first one. And that is the cutting of the Rojas Unfinished Business. If you haven't had the Rojas Unfinished Business yet, give it a try. It just came out probably like eight months ago, six months ago, something like that. And it's my new favorite from Rojas. So definitely give it a try. And here is Perfect Noise coming, number two. So that being poured to be paired with Rojas Unfinished Business is Manitoni Still Works Maple Blend. Manitoni still works based out of Pottstown, Pennsylvania. Technically not a bourbon, but it's still a bourbon. So, this episode. Wonderful interview with a good friend of mine, fantastic author, and all-around punk rock badass, Mr. Andrew Thurk King. Thanks for having me there, Jimmy Boy. Absolutely, Happy to be buddy. here at the Wooden Indian with the fellow uh, Delco Dirt brother. Yep. Absolutely. So you recently came out with a book, and we're we're gonna we're gonna talk about that in a couple minutes. Uh, first thing I want to talk about is tell us a little bit about yourself, a little bit of your history, what led you up to now. Okay, so uh, I am a fintech banker by day. Uh, mostly had a dual career. Uh, primarily in the music business and then also in banking and finance with uh, different iterations, both um, you know, um, financial planning, running online lending shops, running lead generation companies, and uh, then also working um, in the, for the past nine years or so uh, for an online bank serving the, the fintech space and, the, and, and uh, you know, sponsoring payments. Um, and uh, long-time you know, punk rocker, always was into heavy music, uh, you know, did a lot of other things, owned a gym, wrote a spy novel, uh, many entrepreneurial efforts, which kind of fed into the, the, the stories and the lessons and everything that's embedded in the book in Failure Rules. Very nice. So I, I read your book. I listened to the audio book. I read the hardcover. I loved both. I got to know, who did you get to do the reading for the audio book? Yeah, so the guy's name is Jay Asang. He's an actor. He was um, he was on the show Twin Peaks on Showtime. Okay. Yeah, he yeah. also um, I think helped in uh, uh, some of the production video production work for Social Distortions video Machine Gun Blues, which is one of my favorite fucking songs. I love Machine Gun Blues. It's a great old. You know, I love Social Distortion. They're one of my favorite uh, bands of all time. And you know, I worked with Scribe Media, who kind of did you know soup to nuts. Helped me with all the production of the book. I mean, everything from the editing to the iconography. Uh, the woman that did the cover art has done the cover art for three or four Stephen King novels. Like, they're all very professional, seasoned people. Really helped me in, like, fleshing out my ideas, shaping the book, refining it, thinking about presentation. I mean, just, you know, I felt like I delivered a manuscript that was, um, you know, well put together, and I did. 
Uh, and they said to me, like, you have a really good book here. We're going to make it great. And I felt like they did. I feel like they really, I thought they were going to cut uh, portions of the book because it was long. Turn it in at about 100,000 words, which for, you know, uh, a nonfiction book like this, they're more usually between 60 and 80,000. Yeah. It was longer. I thought they were going to cut it. Instead, they had me add about 20,000 words. Yeah. Beef it up, thicken it up, and give it some more shape and structure. Worked out well, I think. People tell me even though it's long, it's not a laborious read that it actually digests well still and it's accessible which makes me happy so from the audiobook audiobook standpoint they sent me samples of all the uh, different narrators that i had to choose from and i i was really discouraged at first because like the first 12 they sent was like this tired sappy ass grandfatherly sounding slow no energy yeah. kind of fucking shit you know and um then they sent me another batch after i rejected those same thing going through them almost all of them i rejected until I heard Jay, and I was like, all right, this guy has a little bit more, uh, you know, a better cadence, a little more urgency in his voice. Yeah. And, um, you know, so I chose him, and I think he did a kick-ass job. You know, and I talked to him a little bit online before he actually recorded it and kind of reinforced what kind of tone I was looking for, and I, I think he nailed it. So it's funny. When I listened to the audio book and I first heard him speaking and, and, and reading the book and everything – I thought it was a perfect match because he's got he's almost got that grittiness to yeah. his voice. Yeah. And your book, Failure Rules, it's lack of a better term. It's a self-help book, right? It is. It is. Yeah. It wasn't, so, wasn't intended to be that way, but it has that effect. Right? Yeah. So it's a gritty, authentic self-help book. It's, it's not I'm sort of. Yeah. yeah. It, it's it's a self-help book that drinks bourbon and. <laughs> And has a few tattoos and listens to Motorhead and mm -hmm. smokes a cigar or two. But exactly. I'm not usually one for self-help books. I got this in the... I specifically remember when I got this book in the mail. I came home after working a night shift. And there was a package from Amazon and it was the book. And I'm like, oh, fuck, let's <laughs> go. And it was still nice out. So I sit out on the Great Cigars Garden Lounge, which is the front porch. Uh, shout out to my mom for gardening. <laughs> and I sat and read the book. I enjoyed a nice bourbon, a few cigars. Had a very good time with it. Finally, my mom comes to get me. She's like, you've been up for three hours. You need to go to sleep. And I'm like, has it really been three hours? I got about 200 pages into the book. Awesome. Nice. First time. I could not put it down. Me being not one to go after self-help books and everything. It's almost like it's a self-help book that speaks my language. So you have a nice conglomeration of debauchery and positivity in this book. <laughs> that's, that's the best way that's I could put probably it. probably true. I certainly you, pick characters that are you have, shaded with, with the vice as well as the virtue. Yeah. That's right. You have a nice mix of debauchery and positivity mixed within this book mm. between the lessons you've learned personally and the lessons from celebrities and musicians and everybody else that you yeah. you mentioned in this book so what gave you the inspiration to write this book and not specifically write it but write it in the fashion that you did yeah so obviously it was a, a journey and an evolution of thought and ideas uh, but it, the genesis was I was taking a walk uh, on the beach um, 
and uh, this was in, uh, in Brigantine, New Jersey, probably tail end of 2013. I had just kind of gone through a business divorce, which really kind of put into some chaos, uh, you know, my, my work life, my, my personal financial life, and I had to reorganize a lot of things and figure out my next move and was thinking about the different things that I was going to lurch into next and how I would do it. And there was a lot of pain and kind of, you know, um, you know stuff to kind of process from the business divorce. Uh, it was not it was not fun. It was not pretty. Right. And at the same time, I was I was having marital troubles. It's my first my, my ex-wife. Uh, and uh, I was on the precipice of a marital divorce. And so knowing that that failure was likely coming and that I just gone through this kind of relationship failure with this business divorce with an ex-partner and then thinking through. And so at this point, I'm late 30s uh, going on my 40th birthday. And I'm reflecting on this beach walk, and I'm listening to, to Ace of Spades by Motorhead, Hard Times by the Cro-Mags, singing for the Cro-Mags. John Joseph wrote the foreword to this book. He also wrote the PMA Effect. He's a triathlete, uh, uh, Hare Krishna devotee, motivational speaker, tremendous human being. Um, and, uh, you know, I was listening to, uh, you know, all kinds of music, stuff I love, punk rock, hardcore, metal. That stuff always, you know, invigorates me, gets me pumped. And I was thinking about the Winston Churchill quote, which is um, success is going from failure to failure without loss of enthusiasm. And that was just so true to me. That was really kind of like the crux of my 20s and my 30s as I kind of went through this, uh, you know, journey of entrepreneurial off-road adventuring, trying different things. Because I was pretty much an entrepreneur both by necessity because I wasn't finding jobs that made me enough money to really support my family and give me the life I wanted. And I was also an entrepreneur and a creative just by nature. So it was really a big part of my DNA. Uh, but, you know, when you go those paths, which is largely what the book's about, you know, difficult paths, um, you're likely going to encounter more difficulty, potentially. Uh, you're going to shoulder more risk. And you have to be premeditatively uh, prepared uh, to confront, you know, metabolize, leverage, and optimize failures, uh, even though you try to avoid them. Avoid them. I mean, the... Uh, the self-evident failure role is try to avoid failure. Um, this is not failure porn. This is not saying go fail and be reckless. Um, but at the same time, uh, there's a lot of value that can be pulled from failure. And I think it behooves us to think about it ahead of time. And so I'm thinking through all the things I had gone through uh, and what I had learned from them. And I was just convicted that day to write a book on the value of failure. And I wrote down just some rough ideas. Uh, and then it evolved over the course of seven years of writing this. Uh, into what it is today and it started with just just kind of a dump like right get it all out here's the things that i kind of went through and then all right go back reread it what are the lessons i can pull out of this and then once i refined that it was like all right great how can i support this with broader texture by adding in my virtual mentors people that actually uh i've learned a lot from uh whether it's you know authors or podcast hosts or from a song or a philosopher or whatever it might be and layer that in to kind of support the lessons that I found. Uh, and, and the structure really revealed itself over time to the point where I was like, okay, each chapter has its own lesson. These lessons actually nicely bunch up and roll up into overarching what I call rules. And uh, it became the five rules of failure. And each, each rule, you know, kind of collapses into, you know, sub-lessons uh, for which each chapter is focused on connected to that rule and you know each chapter has like an anchor quote uh you know typically someone that i write about uh, as a case study within that chapter 
And, um, you know, most of the subjects of the case studies I, I chose because they truly and authentically were people that I followed or that had influenced me or helped me think through hard times and failures and tricky situations and had, uh, you know, bestowed some applicable, actionable wisdom to me. Uh, and, and, and that's how they kind of made it in the book. So this wasn't just like, uh, here, let's pick these strategically because these will all right. kind of bunch together and make the book great. Well, yeah, because very authentic. authentic. I mean, these are the ones that I actually looked up to and yeah. respect. So, so you're the people you speak about in your book, they range to everyone from political figures, musicians, actors, famous authors, all the way down to some of your friends. And ancient philosophers. I mean, and ancient philosophers. Yeah. Like, how how long did it take you to gather the resources just from them, not even your own personal experiences, but how long did it take you to gather all the resources from them and find the perfect quotes and the perfect experiences that they have gone through to fit in your book? It was a little bit of work, but it wasn't too much work because, again, th these were kind of... Uh, ideas, you know, uh, quotes, uh, song lyrics, concepts that were already in me because these were either, these were authors I already read, books that I was already, you know, uh, entrenched in, music I already listened to, uh, people I already follow, influencers I already pay attention to. So again, it was actually pretty organic. Like it was already in me. I just had to go reference what I already had read and already had kind of integrated into my own thinking. That's really So cool. it wasn't that hard, to be honest with you. It yeah. wasn't like I was researching, really. It was like, oh, yeah, that's right. I did this, and this aligns with what I learned from so-and-so. And how did he put it? Oh, he put it this way, or she put it that way. And what was that story of her that I remember that I love so much, yeah. whether it's Sarah Blakely or Stephanie Land? Oh, yeah, that's right. That's what it connected to me, and this connects to my story. So it was really kind of natural. It wasn't that hard. That's really interesting, because I know a lot of people who wind up writing Nonfiction stories that have stories of other people in them. They have to go through like years yes. or months of research. Yeah. And they have to look up case studies. They have yes. to look up uh, autobiographies and biographies and watch videos and everything. And for you to be inspired by all this stuff prior to doing research Correct. for the book. Correct. That's really interesting. Yeah. Um, so it's almost like you're untangling the knot ball that's in your head and exactly just right. putting them putting it organized on a page that's right um you're i i just gotta say your book in addition to being a very good self-help book i enjoyed how the stories did kind of flow like so with metal music you have obviously the overarching metal and then you have black metal you have thrash metal things of that nature it's interesting to see how your rules act in the same way so the overarching genre is failure and then you have failure purifies and failure does this and failure does that yep. and you go throughout each chapter or each section rather and talk about how each of these stories corresponds with that one certain rule. Um, so what made you come up with the ideas for the rules as opposed to kind of just guidelines to avoid it? Yeah. So, I mean, again, I think this really was me saying, you know, I didn't think that much about 
how to handle failure ahead of time as I encountered much of it throughout my 20s and 30s. And now as, you know, I was approaching my 40th birthday at the time. Uh, and, you know, again, that was like, you know, nine years ago, 10 years ago. Um, you I was don't like, look anything past 35. Oh, thanks, boss. Thanks, thanks. <laughs> I was like, how do I want to do this differently for the next half of my life? And how can I maybe, you know, uh, collate this wisdom somehow uh, into a book to help others think about it ahead of time so they can get ahead of it? And what have I truly learned from this? What are the lessons? What are the rules, so to speak, to follow? Uh, and as I went through the stories um, that I had written down of my own experiences uh, and then layered in everybody else's and had kind of the lessons per chapter, again, I looked at all the lessons. I was like, all right, well, these 10 lessons from these 10 chapters, what do they really, these seem to go together. Why do they go together? What are they saying? And it was, became clear that each one had an overarching rule that I could really identify, define, to connect them to. Um, right. And uh, it was, it, again, it just revealed itself, almost like the muse, like Stephen Pressfield talks about the muse. Like if you're just quiet and you listen and you pour over your material, it's going to tell you what you need to do to shape it. Like, yeah, I really, really believe in that. I really believe in like the, the almost divine power of time and solitude and, and letting your work rest and letting your ideas flow. I mean, I talk about the uh, ancient Jewish mystic, mystic uh, uh, the Maharal of Prague in the book in the chapter that I write about uh, guarding your inner self and the need for a surplus of solitude as a creative or as a leader uh, to be able to kind of weed through and, and process the, 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 the trifles of the day-to-day and to recapture and maintain overarching vision. Uh, you know, and I, I talk about the Maharal of Prague and how he talks about how you really need to let the spiritual lead the physical and the primary attribute of the spiritual sphere is solitude. It's silence. And so... I, I would intentionally block off, you know, just like a surplus of silence in my life to be able to hear what I needed to hear from, from the muse to write this book. Right. Uh, there was one time I, I took maybe four or five days and went away to an Airbnb on a farm completely by myself, barely looked at my phone, took long walks, of course, drank a lot of bourbon, smoked a lot of cigars, took naps in the afternoon. But, you know, I was plowing through like 2,000 words a day. I would absolutely and, kill for that. And barely even <laughs> talking to anybody. I may have, you know, talked to my wife like, you know, once a day for yeah. a little bit. But other than that, like, dude, it was just silence, inner life, let it flow. And, uh, you know, that was a way to do it. And I didn't need that all the time, right? I didn't need like a retreat to, to get the work done because that's not realistic. I also did the work, you know, as I went along my life, you know. Right. I could sit down for you know an hour at night and, and get work done. Like I, I, I found find, found ways to write in the cracks of life and still make it effective and, and flow. Yeah, that's that's really interesting. Um, so in your book, you go through everything from music to spirituality. You go through everything from socialization through cigars and bourbon yeah. to self-reflection and self-growth at the gym now before i go any further the segues right there i just want to mention one of our sponsors that's green enchantments uh she actually delves into the spiritual a lot so she makes these holistic bath and body works for lack of a better term and she has a topical physical uh reason for them a topical physical use for them She's also got a spiritual use for them. So if you practice, you know, 
any kind of religion like Wiccan, or even if you just want to get a little more relaxed for meditation, things of that nature, you can use these things for the smell and the topical remedies they're used for to kind of help calm your body or relax the muscles, do whatever you need to do. Um, that being said, everything's going to be posted down in the show notes. So make sure you guys go check her out. Her name is Kara Marino. She is a full-time occupational therapist and essentially a full-time herbalist. So one of the smartest people I know. She knows her shit. Um, just don't piss her off. She's like a honey badger. She'll fucking <laughs> gouge her eyes out. But so getting back to the spirituality aspect of your of your book. So you mentioned a lot of different points in your book where spirituality comes into play. Yes. Um, everything from going to the gym and lifting weights, listening to music, even just sitting in a cigar lounge or on your back patio smoking a cigar looking at the sunset. What is your spiritual connection to failure as mm. part of how it has affected your life? That is a great question. Yeah, so I think that's um, emblematic, I think, of uh, you, you know, the core message of the book, really, is it's this idea that, that growth and truly connecting with your calling journey, which represents your highest manifestation of your most unique talent stack in the world, um, really requires often a continual process of death and renewal. You know, it's stretching yourself, uh, failing, but also looking in the rubble and finding out what was created by that failure that is net new, additive, and helps build you up, make you a different person to go into your next step, right? Right. So, um, to me, it's, it's, it's very much, you know, aligned with, with, that the imagery of you know, could be even like you know the resurrection imagery it could be you know any sort of death and renewal concept and any you know spiritual you know uh, expression right yeah. um, and I think the opposite of that which is I think uh, a position that often anchors people in a debilitating state of death without the renewal roll up is, in it, a ball and die is those that Pretty cling much. to safety, those that cling to uh, yeah. uh, being a safety file uh, and just uh, being afraid to take risks to uh, go after things that are difficult uh, and might utilize their highest skill set in the world um, because they're, they're clinging to safety or they're clinging to some perception of safety or stability. And I think that often causes people in many ways to uh, become sick mentally, physically, spiritually. Uh, and live lives that are, you know, like David Thoreau said, um, lives of quiet desperation. I mean, which has also been popularized by Joe Rogan quoting that. Yeah. But it's really true. I think I think that's like the opposite of embracing unavoidable failure on a difficult path uh, to, you know, live your highest calling. So in the book, you mentioned the Phoenix a lot, which ties into what you just said about a lot of rebirth and renewal. And... I, I can't even lie. The first time I heard you or read you mentioning the Phoenix, my mind immediately went to Harry Potter. 
Because yeah, well, sure, it, of course, it's the most common depiction of, of the phoenix, especially yeah. for my generation. It's the most common depiction of the phoenix. Um, but the other thing I thought of was my personal history, because hmm. I read this book, and you know, it led to a lot of reflection. It led to a lot of holy shit, I failed a lot, and I did exactly what he said in the <laughs> book. Because I've had a lot of stuff happen in the last couple of years. Hmm. Um, so you look at the, the Phoenix analogy. A um, couple of years ago, I had my heart broken. I was debilitated. Mm. I was on the border of alcoholism. I was on mm. the border of like just shutting down. Mm. And about a week later, I take my seventh police academy test to get in the academy. It took me seven fucking tries. <laughs> seven Wow. Seventh Academy test. How many did you expect it to take you? Like, how three. off was that? At, at least three. Okay, all right. Um, and the seventh try, um, I get in, and I went home and I cried. I I bawled my eyes out. I bet you did. Because that's a good cry right there, pal. My that's a manly fucking cry right there. Yeah, it is. <laughs> my issue is I'm not built for running. I'm built to pick shit up and put it down. Yeah. And the only thing that got me every single I time, I got that same. Uh, I got that same build. Pal. Yeah. <laughs> Like, I could pick up 240, no problem. You expect me to run a mile, you can go fuck yourself. Uh, but, you know, the thing that always got me with the test was the mile and a half. And we had to run it in a set amount of time and whatnot. And my big thing is I wasn't good with the endurance and the things of that nature. Yeah. The push-ups, the sit-ups, the sprint even, because I used to do that back in high school. I was fine with all those. It was the distance. And... I'm reading your book and I'm looking back on my past experiences, even from the last couple of years. And you go through this debilitating, essentially person breaking event. And out of nowhere, this rebirth comes. Yes. And I went through that with everything going on in the Academy. I went in the Academy. I came out a completely different person. Mm. And, you know, I'm a cop now. There are sometimes I don't even remember I'm a police officer. I still think I'm that five-year-old kid who goes to St. Philomena's grade school. <laughs> and it's amazing how that Phoenix analogy can take effect of your life without you even realizing it when it's happening. That's right. And you look back on it and it's like, holy shit. Yes. Yeah. But your book also goes through your music journey and everything you did as far as a recording artist. So tell us a little bit about your music journey and, and how it affected your path to realize how failure rules and what it could do to teach you everything. Sure. Real quick, though. One question. When you went through the breakup... Eight inches. <laughs> and, then, <laughs> and then you had the seven tries before you got to the, you know, past the academy... Was there a connection between the the emotional chaos or the failure space of the breakup? Did that in any way motivate you more or give you more kind of focus to keep trying again to get to that seventh uh, seventh try? Was there a connection between the two? So, kind of yes and no. I mean, my connection to police work stems back to my family. Um. um third generation direct law enforcement. I'm like seventh indirect. 
So we have people from like two generations ago who were bobbies and constables in England. And then my dad and my grandfather are both retired police officers. I don't want to be the guy to break the lineup and become a, uh, become a plumber. <laughs> but to get in the police academy, it's, it's interesting not to bring politics in. But the, the girl I was with at the time, she was very left. Mm-hmm. I was very right. Mm-hmm. Part of the reason we, she broke up was mm. I was very right. She was very left. Nobody moved to the middle. Mm. And I think there was a subconscious part of me that was like, I'm not going to pass because I'm with her and she doesn't believe in this. She doesn't believe in that. And it kind of bled off a little Mm. bit. Okay. That chain got broken. So there was a subconscious shedding. It was a very Freudian thing. Yeah. So the, the extraneous kind of like weight of that disconnect between you and her was released and might have given you a little more focus or momentum. The weight of, to, oh, to keep going. Yeah. The weight of, oh, this might be offensive. Yes, or this might, yeah. Just left. Yeah. And I got onto the parking lot because where my police academy is, we don't even have a fucking track. We have to run on a parking lot. <laughs> Which kind of works because, you know, you're never going to be chasing after a suspect in perfect conditions on a park on a on a track with the perfect bounce and the perfect yeah. sneakers so i kind of get it um but i stepped onto that parking lot and i'm like fuck you who gives a shit i ain't offending anybody i'm doing my fucking job so you stepped into a more authentic slipstreaming of your calling journey by shedding kind of the extraneous waste that was attached to that relationship so yep. for sure that was uh, you know an example of failure rule number one, failure purifies exactly. burns off the accumulated waste and old thinking needs to die. New thinking needs to emerge. Old attachments need to burn off so that new ones can be created. That's exactly, you know, the premise yeah. of failure rule number one. And I, I, it's so funny. I read that section of your book and I immediately thought of that part of my life. And it's crazy because you're some, quote-unquote self-help books they're bullshit yeah you read them and you're like all right who the fuck has time to meditate for an hour and a half every morning yeah yeah i don't have time to do yoga for three hours karen (laughs) come up with something useful yeah and your book from start to finish every single part down to the playlist we're gonna get to that because that's fucking cool but everything from start to finish has a purpose it has a practical application in life yes and it's more or less it's motivation to kind of remind people you know what you're gonna fuck up yeah you're gonna fail you're gonna mess up you're gonna make mistakes the important thing is you got to learn from it and i got this from this pre uh super bowl sunday I was struggling. I was very upset. But you look at Jalen Hurts and you look at the way he loses a Super Bowl compared to the way Tom Brady loses a Super Bowl. So Tom Brady lost to a backup quarterback <laughs> with the Philadelphia Eagles in the Super Bowl. And, you know, he's distraught. He falls down on the field. He's damn near crying. Doesn't even shake the opposing quarterback's hand. Yeah. 
you look at Jalen Hurts when he loses the Super Bowl. Mind you, this is his second year playing with the Eagles. And he and Nick Sirianni take us to the Super Bowl. I, I, I'm sorry. I just think that's interesting. <laughs> but you look at the way he loses the Super Bowl and the way he accepts failure. And I don't remember the exact quote, but it's something along the lines of everybody takes pain differently. And everybody takes failure and rejection differently. I'm going to take this and use it as motivation and use it, use it as a teaching moment. So I can come back better stronger and faster next year and get us the win you take that compared to how tom brady lost to super bowl and you have astronomically different personalities and when i saw that quote and i saw the way he carried himself after the loss from the super bowl i thought of your book yeah I'm, I'm, I'm half thinking, like, Jalen Hurts bought Andrew's fucking book. <laughs> like, he took that straight out of his yeah. fucking book. Yeah. Well, yeah, that, that, that maps to the, the chapter on rejection and using rejection as fuel, which, you know, I have a quote from the erudite, uh, wildly wise, uh, 21st century um, scholar Sylvester Stallone when he says... <laughs> <laughs> when he says... You know, when I face rejection, something along the lines, when I face rejection, I don't retreat. I hear it as a bugle in my ear blowing, you know, blowing to get me get going again. Right. So you yeah. set that up the exact same way <laughs> I set up some stupid shit that I say every time at work. I see somebody doing something fucking stupid and somebody comments on it. And I said, you know, it's just like the great philosopher Plato said. And they're like, what did he say? I said, rough translation. Bitches be tripping. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Hey, look, I'm not, I'm not afraid to, to quote Stallone, right? I mean, come on, you know, the Rocky quote, uh, it's not how hard you hit, it's how hard you get hit uh, and, and keep going or whatever that quote is. I mean, you know, tons I'll, of practical wisdom loaded in those quotes. So. I'll tell you what, the first time I saw the video, like somebody cut that part out of the movie. They put like motivational music behind it. Yeah. I almost cried. Like, it was that moving. It was good. Um, so, real quick, get to your book. You mentioned the Chromex and <laughs> punk rock and heavy metal is a big influence for you. 100, yeah. I got to say, I think it's really interesting. I read your book about three weeks after I listened to a Jocko podcast episode. Oh, nice. For Jocko Willink. Yes. And he mentions the Cro-Mags. Yes. And I'm reading through your book, and it mentions the Cro-Mags. And I'm like, who the fuck are the Cro-Mags? It doesn't only mention the Cro-Mags. The forward's written by the singer of the Cro-Mags. Yeah. So, so yeah. I wind up listening to the Cro-Mags because nice. I'm like, oh, and he listens to them. Jocko fucking listens to them. I hope you listen to Age of Quarrel. That's the record you got to listen yep. to. Yep. Okay. All right. Best Wishes is okay, too, but Age of Quarrel. Yeah. It's, uh, it's, the, it's the OG of Cro-Mags. But I'm like, these two great fucking guys listen to it. I'm like, Andrew listens to it. <laughs> fucking Jocko listens to it. So here's I gotta the, listen to fucking Chromex. So Jocko, has got punk rock hardcore history from mm -hmm. New England, uh, in a lot of ways. And I talk about him in the book. I, I, you know, use him as a case study on, on one chapter about leveraging chaos as an idea engine. Uh, and then I also talk about Jocko's half brother, Elgin James, who used to be, you know, a leader of a violent street gang, FSU, yep. uh, straight edge gang. Now is a screenwriter and uh, wrote. Um, you know, uh, the screen screen uh, play for um, 
Mayans, uh, Mayans MC for FX, the spin off yep. the Sons of Anarchy. They're half brothers, and I used to kind of know Elgin, never met Chaco. But I put out a record on Thorpe Records, my one record label, for this band, Forced Reality, an oi band, street punk band from New England, old, old band. And the cover has this image of this real tough looking guy, um, kind of like, a, you know, in like a, uh, like a, a skinhead look, but a non, non-racist, non-Nazi yeah. skinhead. Like, people should know that that's, most skinheads are not Nazis. Like, that was He's just a nice by, bald man who yes, listens exactly. to angry music. Right. And it's kind of a character, and I never knew the backstory of it. And I found out just recently, it's Jocko. So mm. I literally put out a record with a cover. It's a picture of Jocko. And I didn't know it till like, a couple months ago. <laughs> My thing is, how can you not tell it's Jocko? Because he's friends with the band, you know. How can you not tell it's Jocko with that fucking jaw? Well, I can now when it was put out to me. But yeah. it, it's not like, a, it's like a, you know, it's a drawing, but it's a drawing of Jocko, you yeah. know. Like, I see, I see a picture of Jocko, like, a facial picture of Jocko Willink. It's wildly distinct. I mean, it's And just, I just think you can't, this man, yeah. this man is like what Disney thinks a brawny guy looks like. <laughs> yeah. Like, you look, at his, you look at his features, and it's like, Jocko, objectively, is a handsome man. But you look at him, and it's like, my God, it looks like he was drawn by Walt Disney. Yeah. I, I mean, love him. He is, like, the quintessential... Fucking caricature of yeah. an absolute brick shit house. I mean, like, I could shave my balls <laughs> with his chin line. <laughs> <laughs> I could. I could shave. Hey, his if fuck- I ever go on his podcast, that's I'm gonna. I'm gonna let oh him my know that. god! Like, you know, Jimmy told me. By the way, you know, the cut of your jaw looks like it could uh, give him a nice shave on his. Uh, it could shave my balls. Yeah. Manscaped's gonna go out of business with Jocko's jaw. Jockoscape. Well, he's already got Jocko fuel. He might as well have Jockoscape. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um. So, how many record labels do you have? Or ha- let me let me correct that. How many record labels have you had? Uh, so I own two. So one was Thorpe Records. Uh, after my namesake, my middle name Thorpe Records. So um, started that in 2000. Released around 80 records on that. Primarily focused on hardcore and metal. A lot of like old New York hardcore, hardcore style uh, stuff like uh, Madball, Sheer Terror, um, and then Boston hardcore stuff like Blood for Blood and Slapshot. Um, did a little bit of street punk on that label and some metalcore stuff and even some emo, emo, you know, screamo type stuff too. This band for Dire Life's Sake from Detroit did really, really well in like the mid 2000s. I put their record out, sold thousands just through Hot Topic alone. Uh, and then in 2006, I, I branched off and started another label focused on subgenres of um, street punk, uh, psychabilly, which is a mix of punk rock and rockabilly. You know, think like, you know, Elvis and Sid Vicious or Stray right. Cats, but more, 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 more punk and faster, you know. And, um, and then also like Oi, which is like street rock, pub rock. Uh, the most, I guess, um, popular kind of reference for that would be the early Dropkick Murphy stuff was Oi Tinged. You know, they actually started off as a skinhead band from Boston yeah. and sung oi music. And they actually... Um, and then know. a drunk guy from Bagpipes walks into the bar and they're like, right. oh, fuck it, bring exactly. them in. Yeah. And you know, now they're more like folk punk and a little more like mainstream. But they actually did a split record with this band, The Business, who was like the iconic quintessential English oi band. Mickey Fitz sang for them. He passed away years ago. I did a record for The Business. Uh, and Mickey Fitz is just a legend and an icon. Uh, he was a great guy. Uh, my cousin, who's my business partner at the label, was really, really close to him, flew over to England for the funeral, 
I mean, everybody from large Fredrickson from Rancid was there to all kinds of people. Um, so that's the one. So, so that's Sailor's Grave Records. That's the second label. Um, and that was started in 06. That became more of the active label. I kind of stopped releasing records on Thorpe in 2009 and kept releasing them on Sailor's Grave, um, you know, to now. I haven't done it in a few years. I kind of do them in batches every couple of years, but still very close working with bands like the Coffin Cats, who they just played in uh, Wilmington, Delaware on their last tour here at Bar 13. They were fucking awesome. Uh, bands like the Goddamn Gallows, who mix like, I don't know, they mix like bluegrass with thrash. They're tremendous. Lots of instrumentation. That sounds like a majestic combo. Dude, it's a wild stage show. They're just crazy. And uh, and then bands like Flatfoot 56, who's a Celtic um, punk band from the uh, south side of Chicago. Uh, you know, they have bagpipes and all that. They actually played my wedding, which was freaking awesome. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah, so... Um, but uh, not super active on the record labels anymore. It kind of churns in the background, you know, kind of a somewhat passive portfolio of, of IP rights. But there are some bands I still work with that are still active. And it's nice to have that piping, that infrastructure there, that whenever I find some artists still and I have the time, I can, I can put out a record and have some fun with it. That's awesome. Yeah. That's really awesome. Um, so as far as your musical tastes go, I got to say, I'm a huge fucking fan. <laughs> so I remember. So you listen. You listen to the sound, the Failure World soundtrack. The yes. Nice. I listened to the entire thing twice while I was working. Nice. You know, beautiful thing of being a cop. If nothing happens, you're stuck in a car on your own for eight to twelve hours. Yeah. Got to find something to listen to. Yeah, you need some input. Yeah. So I listened to your playlist, and everything from the Chromags to Motorhead. I mean, I've been listening to Motorhead since I was a kid. Yeah. And I remember when I first met you at... I think it was at Lena's place. At, uh, uh, no, the first time I met you was at Rami's event up in New Havana, in Westchester. Oh, Old Havana. Yeah, okay. Yeah, Old Havana. Yeah, yeah. yeah. okay. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, that's, that, that's kind of my core home lounge that... And then most associated with, yeah. we got, we wound up seeing each other at pairings. Like, this is recent. We saw each other at pairings, like, back in, like, October or something. Okay, yeah. And you mentioned Motorhead. Yeah. And I'm like, oh, I fucking love Motorhead. <laughs> so that's when I started following you on YouTube, and then I find out you're coming out with a book, and I'm like, oh, That's dude, right. I remember that conversation. What's up? I had just done a video on Motorhead. So if you go to my YouTube channel, at Andrew Thorpe King, I do a, a really cool video just talking about Lemmy and the concept of Born to Lose, Live to Win, which I have tattooed on me with a portrait of Lemmy. There's a chapter in the book about that. That's right, yeah. And it's, it's the idea of like, yeah, we are failures. We are fuck-ups. We are flawed. We're all wabi-sabi, which is David Lee Roth would define it as. Yep. We're perfect because we're a little fucked up, right? That's all part of us. And we also have sparks of divinity within us uh, that we can invoke every day. So if we choose to, where we can live to win anyway, even though we're, you know, kind of bored to lose. So it's that dichotomy and like accepting the beauty of our fucked up in this uh, and then choosing every day to find the glory and beauty in the mystery of life anyway and going after shit. Right. That's what it's about. To me, that's bored yeah. to lose, live to win. Yeah. So you talk about the little spark that's in everybody. Anybody who has any doubts about their abilities just think of it this way. You are a ghost that controls a skeleton <laughs> surrounded by a fucking meat puppet <laughs> floating on a rock made out of space dust. 
Exactly. You make it sound as metal as fucking possible. You'll be fine. You'll be fine. Um, so everything from your musical tastes to your workout habits. So you met one of your compatriots at the gym. In your book, you mention it. You met one of your compatriots at the gym. Yeah, there's a couple in there that I mentioned, but yeah, yeah. Um, yes. What aspect of the gym do you think comes into play as far as failure being a big part of your life? Look, man, I mean, those two things, music and lifting weights, not just exercise, not just hiking or walking, which I do too and I love. It's like for every, me, every basic white girl on Tinder, I love hiking. Yeah. Like okay. every girl's going to like hiking because it's just fucking walking. That's all it is, which is fine. Yeah. I dig it, right? I like connecting with nature. I love that. But if that's all I had, it's not enough. Like the, the, the endorphins that kick in when lifting weights, the mental acuity that results from lifting weights, uh, putting on some fast, hard music while lifting weights, just the experience, the energy of that. It's, it's a, an exorcism of, of, of my demons. It helps me problem solve. It then relaxes my body. It channels my aggression, which is heavy, and puts me in that mode after the fact to calmly and objectively deal with life. So when it comes to dealing with failures, I mean, it was, you know, it was going to the gym. It was music. It was spirituality and prayer and faith. It was, you know, uh, you know, balancing the virtues with the vice of my love of cigars and, and uh, you know, reasonable uh, bourbon uh, intake, which reasonable to me is, you know, I, I drink frequently, but not a lot. And yeah. I get more out of alcohol than it gets out of me, just like Churchill did. So, you know, it's like those things but the lifting weights is key i can't i can't live without it yeah i really cannot live without it my mind's not right uh my energy's not right my my emotions aren't right well i'm the same way i work so i just got done a seven day stretch a day shift fucking kill me um i don't go to the gym when i'm on day shift i can't mm-hmm. like yeah right. my gym's not open yet I don't feel like going when I get off work because I'm fucking exhausted. Yeah. I get out of the monkey suit and everything. Now, when I work night shift, I'll go to the gym and lift for two and a half hours. And by the time you go to work, you're, you're by the time I go to work, right? Listen, by the time I (laughs) go to work, I got 80 fucking milligrams of caffeine in my system and creatine, a bunch of fucking protein. And I actually had to switch my, 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 uh, my pre-workout. Because I used to use Berserker, which was great. It got me through a great workout. It was awesome. If I took more than two scoops, four hours into my shift, I was pissed off and ready to fight everyone. So I had to switch. Sounds like a good move. Oh, yeah. Oh, it's great. Oh, my God. Can you imagine getting drunk with that shit? Um, PSA, we are drinking. Man, Tony still works. Maple Blend. Asian Maple Barrels, brewed in Pottstown. Fantastic blend. Definitely try it out. Uh, sweet, but not too sweet. Just sweet, but like not too sweet. Yeah. Got a nice little bite to it. Mm-hmm. It's, uh, what, 84 proof? So it's not going to kill you. But keep in mind, it is still alcohol. As, you know, one of those guys, I have to warn you, please, please, please drink responsibly. 
let me see you on the other end of a live episode and not in the back of my car. Please drink responsibly. Please indulge responsibly and have a good time. While we have a quick break going on right now, I just want to mention some of our sponsors. Uh, Obviously, first off is Wooden Indian Tobacco Shop. We are indulging in this wonderful conversation here tonight. Uh, So thank you to the Wooden Indian and thank you to Dave and Dan and all those guys for letting us work here. Uh, Shout out to All Saints Cigars, our only cigar that is uh, a sponsor. Uh, we have Delco Saka, a.k.a. Mickey Pegg, who is the owner, or co-owner, I should say. Uh, they make fantastic blends. You can find them all at WoodenIndianTobacco.com. We'll ship them right to your door. And you, you can check out the reviews at GreatCigarReviews.com. Uh, also, make sure you support the Trauma Survivors Foundation, owned by a friend of mine, Dennis Carradine. Uh, essentially what they do is they focus on mental health and the healthy well-being of first responders and hospital heroes and give them either the treatment they need for going through uh, traumatic events or uh, supplying them with the proper resources to help those who have gone through some kind of traumatic event. And trauma is, as we know, it's, uh, it depends on the situation, depends on the person. Um, so a car accident can be traumatic. Uh, obviously a shooting can be traumatic. So it not only gives the officers training, it also gives them the therapy they need if they need it. So make sure you check out trauma survivors foundation. They are accepting donations for either cash or for, uh, manpower for volunteers for their hospital heroes fund. And last but not least, make sure you check out sheepdogproduction.com. They are actually uh, the company that made the patches we have now. So if you like the quality of our patches and you're looking to get patches made for yourself or challenge coins or stickers or whatever you might need, check out CheapDogProduction.com. It is law enforcement owned. He has made everything from Chester Fire Department's patches for the uniforms down to uh, soon to be, I believe, uh, Upper Darby's challenge coins for a memorial for a fallen officer. So make sure you check out sheepdogproduction.com and uh, obviously thank all those guys for the support. Now, back to Andy. (laughs) Back to you, Andrew. All right. (laughs) Um, So we've discussed your book a little bit. There's a lot in your book that you discuss that you talk about I don't want to give too much away. Uh, I'll post a link for your website down in the show notes. If you guys want to read the book, which I highly suggest you do, um, make sure you check out Andrew's website. You can get the book from there. Uh, AndrewThorpeKing.com. No E on the end of Thorpe. AndrewThorpeKing.com. There you go. Make sure you check it out. There is not an E at the end of Thorpe, you uneducated swine. (laughs) Um, no useless E. No useless E. <laughs> but make sure you check out his website. It'll have a link to where you can get his book. Uh, obviously, you can also get it on Audible if you're not the kind of guy who likes to read. That's okay. I'm silently judging you. Um, <laughs> but if you don't like to read or if you'd rather intake information on your ride to work, you can get the audiobook version. Um, 
Now, since we're done talking about the book, because I kind of want to leave people with sure. an idea and leave a little bit to the imagination on what they can find. What the fuck are you smoking? Dude, this is, dude, dude, dude. To quote my friend Rami, dude, dude, dude. Oh, dude, 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 dude. dude, dude. <laughs> uh, so I am smoking uh, The Attic by West Tampa Tobacco Company, Rick Rodriguez, who, unlike Rami, who says, dude, 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 Ricky would say, bro, 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 uh, bro, 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 bro. Anyway. I fucking love Ricky. This is, this is dude approved, bro approved, and this is Thorpe approved. This is Jimmy Boy approved. This is a fine ass smoke with a healthy ash that it holds. Uh, fluffy, smooth. It's been my go-to like morning smoke with my yeah. coffee as I get my work going. And in the afternoon, I smoke something different. But this has kind of been my morning smoke. But tonight, I'm smoking it with, with you know, with, with See, it's bourbon. funny. But this has been my morning smoke. I've been buying a box yeah. every week and a half, every two weeks, because they're small boxes. There's only 14 yeah. in each box, which is a little strange. Reminds me of like kind of like some weird like format in the music industry for vinyl or some shit. But we know Ricky. Cool. Ricky's just got to be different. Yeah, it, it, it's very avant-garde. Yes. Yeah. Yes, yes. Um, so it's funny. If you guys want to hear or read a written review of the West Tampa Attic, you can either check out WoodenIndianTobacco.com or you can actually go back in the podcast and look at the, uh, what the fuck do I call I got to stop drinking this, man. It's haunting <laughs> shit, man. It's fucking me up. Uh, you can read the Cigar Spotlight for the West Tampa Attic, uh, where I give a little bit of an audible review on it and kind of give you an idea of the notes you can get from it. But it's kind of interesting because usually a dark wrapper like a San Andreas, I wouldn't attribute to a morning smoke because usually you, you attribute agreed, the agreed. darker smokes yes. to like later night yes. bourbon and scotch. Good point. You don't usually attribute it to morning smokes, but I have had it with coffee. Um, Pear is great with coffee. Um, dude. Even on a somewhat empty stomach. I don't even need solid food in the morning. I have coffee and like a protein shake. The Black Rifle... Mm coffee company yeah. power llama blend mm. with a west tampa attic a little little bit of sugar i'm talking like half a teaspoon yeah a little bit of sugar just kind of get that bitterness out dude did <laughs> holy shit you will thank me that stuff is fantastic i am close to that except instead of black rifle I'm a Death Wish coffee mm. drinker. I mm -hmm. fucking love Death Wish coffee. I love Death and their Wish. The dark espresso blend is yeah. dope. I have that. I just drink it black, decisively bitter. Don't care. I love the black coffee. Just like Henry Rollins singing a black flag, black coffee, great Fuck. fucking song. That gets me rolling for the work day. Black coffee and cigar, puff puff, little punk rock in the ears. I'm ready to rock. Fucking every morning. Ash all over my fucking microphone. <laughs> fucking shit. Uh Delco, but yeah, Delco asshole over there. Yeah. Oh my god. <laughs> uh, I saw a meme recently. It says, "Your accent's so Delco." Well, yeah, it's it's a disorder. <laughs> I saw that too. And yeah, like the Beetlejuice guy or whatever. Right? Yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, Death Wish is fantastic. My parents got me a coffee. Um, I forget what the name is. I have it at home. It, it's a small batch. Yeah. Kind of company like Black Rifle and Death Wish. They have this bourbon bacon blend. Mm. Bourbon oh. bacon coffee. 
bourbon bacon coffee. Wow. It's literally like coffee that like is shipped with a set of balls on it. It is. <laughs> like hanging off the back. If you need an excuse <laughs> to wake up in the morning, get this fucking coffee because it's going to blow your fucking... Like, it works the same as a Nissan Altima, all right? You buy a Nissan Altima, it automatically comes with a suspension and two warrants. You buy this cup of coffee, it automatically comes with a pair of balls. Exactly. So just <laughs> swinging from the bag. Yep. UPS man doesn't know what's happening. He's hearing shit bounce. He doesn't know what's going on. Damn right. So, as far as your cigar flavor profile is, because we are a cigar podcast, as far as your profile is, what do you prefer in a cigar, whether it be blend, flavor profile, construction, um, brand, event, things of that nature? What do you prefer? So I'll preface this, preface this by saying, unlike you, I am not really super versed on all the specifications, all the scientific aspects of cigars. I just know what I like and I know what I don't. I do like Maduros, but I also like Sun Growns. I like a Cameroon every once in a while. You know, um, I like box press typically. Um, I kind of get stuck on a brand or a stick and stick with it for a while uh, or no a couple. No pun intended. You know, right. Yeah, no pun intended. Uh, and lately it's been every other week, it's been a box of the attic and a box of something from my father, whether it's the judge or the, um, uh, what's it, the opulencia is really oh, yeah. nice. I had one of those today. Uh, and I also, I just bought a box of, um, the, uh, uh, what is it? The, um, uh, the new one that Rami's selling. I forget what it's called. He's got Macanudo, Cohiba. Um, Excalibur. Sancho. Uh, Sancho Panza. Yes, yes. I like I like the double Maduro, Sancho Panza. Panza. I don't know why that was escaping my mind. That's what I was smoking in the car when I met you up front. Uh, <laughs> it's, it's like a good interim stick because I got this, you know, smaller one. But uh, yeah, so um, I just, I, I got to say, I know they're a little bit uh, trendy or whatever. I, I like my father. I like their line. I like their line a lot. Uh, you know, I like... You know, the uh, the CAO flathead line that Ricky did before he left. I like those. Um, the CAO uh, pylon is good. Uh, I used to smoke a lot of, um, um, what was it? The, uh, uh, the um, um, my mind's too much whiskey. Never mind. I can't even think of what the smoke No was. such thing as too much whiskey. <laughs> Unless you drive. Yeah. Oh, party gets black label. That's what I was thinking of. Oh my god! That was yeah. my smoke for like years. I mean, I just could not get off it, uh, and then I finally got sick of it and go back to yeah. it once in a while. But yeah. yeah, when I when I started smoking cigars, um, my dad actually got me into cigars because he's a cigar smoker. Oh, really? Nice. So actually, the goal is I want to have him on the show at some point. He's got to wear that cap. He better have a mustache. He does. Talk about his cop years smoking cigars. It'll be like. You know, instead Listen. of mini me, it'll be like maxi me. It'll be like, uh, you know. I don't know, because I'm taller than him. Oh, are you? No shit. Oh, yeah. yeah. Listen, I call my dad Buddha for a reason. <laughs> He's short, fat, bald, and happy. <laughs> and then I went up looking it up a couple years later. Turns out, I think in like Mandarin, it means father. Oh, is that right? So Buddha it worked out. Yeah. Huh. So it works out pretty well. So now he's been called Buddha since like freshman year of high school. Um,. But I want to have him on the podcast because he was really the start of my cigar journey. Mm. 
And I can remember exactly the first cigar and the first drink I had. Really? So, first cigar and drink I had, I was up at hunting camp. It's past the, uh, uh, what the fuck do you, I'm a cop, I should fucking know this shit. (laughs) Anyway, um, the first cigar I had was a Rocky Patel Royale Toro, which is a pretty heavy stick for a first guy. Yeah, it is, yeah. I didn't yak, I didn't get a cigar hangover, Mm. nothing. And the first drink I had was Jack Daniels straight. That's rock and roll right there. Oh, my God, yeah. And that's like Lemmy approved. That's ACDC approved, too. Oh, my God, dude. So, (laughs) top three bands of all time. What are yours? That is tough. Top three bands. I love Madball. New York Hardcore, Madball, one of my favorite bands. I actually put out a record for them. But even besides that, I first listened to them when I was 16, got the 7-inch for... um, um, you know, what was that one called? It was uh, Smell the Bacon. And, uh, yeah, Madball, my, probably my favorite band. Um, also love, I, I do love Social Distortion. Uh, and Motorhead and Cro-Max, throw them in there. I'll stop there. So I won't pollute it with uh, diluting it with too many names. But, yeah, I, I named four. <laughs> so I could tell you my top three bands, and I could tell you my top five. My top three bands of all time. Black Sabbath. Yes. Motorhead. Yes. And ACDC. Dude, those three are literally like, that's like the trinity of like perennial fucking metal. Yeah. Like it's cross-generational. That shit should survive longer than the cockroaches if there's a, 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 you know, a nuclear holocaust. Like there still should be somewhere that somebody can listen to Motorhead. Well, it's funny. If you look at, if you look at all three bands, minus Motorhead for a couple years. If you look at all three bands, none of them did covers. Motorhead did do them, but yes. AC Motorhead did a few yeah. covers. But if you look at ACDC and Black Sabbath, yeah. they didn't do any fucking covers. Yeah. You look at Motorhead. A well, lot of their great. They did a lot of their the covers. Queen, they did Louie Louie. A lot of their covers, covers. I fucking love more than the original. Yes. I, I love hearing them do God Save the Queen more than I love hearing the Sex Pistols doing it. I know, right? Yeah. Um. My top five are the previous three. I got to put in Five Finger Death Punch. I I, I love those guys. One, their music is great, and they get a lot of shit for it. Their music is great, but they put on such a good concert. Mm. Their show is great. My big thing is they support law enforcement. They support Ah. first responders. They support the military. They do a whole thing at their shows. They throw on such a good fucking concert. And my last one is Black Label Society by Zach, Zach Wild. Wild, man. Zach, Absolutely. Zach Wild is the perfect love child between a Viking and a Celtic. And a biker. Throw a biker in there. And a biker, yeah. 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 A little a tinge of biker, yeah. Yeah. 100%. He's, He's an animal. Complete oh original savage. Absolutely. Hearing him talking about like working out and drinking beer and, <laughs> and jerking off too much to porn. Now, like... <laughs> The man is what I aspire to be when I grow up. I remember, like, reading an interview with him, and he's talking about how, like, he did squats so heavy and then got drunk and then, like, jerked off, like, three times and, like, couldn't walk the next day or something. I'm like, that's a man who's got... Those are fucking... A fair bit of masculinity going on in his blood. 
you know. And then his Hangover albums are great too. The I forget what they're called. But they're oh like, yeah, those acoustic Hangover albums were, were tremendous. Like Book of Shadows, one of them is yeah. called outstanding fucking record. Like after like all the drug use and whatnot, Zach Wild's life are goals a hundred percent. Between his workout regiment, yeah, his his music regiment and his touring regiment, yeah. like he's out on tour with Pantera right now. He's played with Ozzy Osbourne. He's got his own band. Hatebreed hate toured with Hatebreed too. Yeah. He toured with Hatebreed. He's got all this stuff going on. In my opinion, he is the best guitarist of our era. What's cool too is. Him standing alone and outside and aside of like Ozzy, it's very distinct. Oh yeah, like what he did with Ozzy was for Ozzy, was with Ozzy, fit Ozzy, you know that whole thing. Well, like, his his he's, he's really has his own his like, own aesthetic, his own message, his own yeah. like like vibe that he's created with Black Label Society. Well, it's that funny, one hundred percent him between his his own vibe, his musical style, and just the way he is. Yeah. It's such a conglomeration of basically everything that's fucking cool. <laughs> so his musical style is like blues metal. Yep. Whereas his on stage style is like biker meets kilt guy meets yeah, yeah, yeah. Viking. Yes. 100%. And then he's got his deal with Death Wish where he's got Odin Force Blend. Oh, is that from him? That's him. So Odin Force Blunt. I didn't pay that close attention I don't think to those it's, marketing emails. I don't think it's explicitly his, but he's partnered with Death Wish yeah. to kind of promote it. Yeah. yeah. Um, so he's got Odin Force Blunt. You look at the fucking merch stand they have at the concert. I got one of these. I got the Viking beanie. Nice. It's a fucking beanie hat with Viking horse. When you shake your head, you look like a derpy-ass golden retriever because the horns are just <laughs> flopping all over the fucking place. Yeah. But I saw him in concert when he toured with Hatebreed and Anthrax. And I they, remember when you went to that show. Oh, my what God. What the hell of a lineup, huh? Oh, my God. I had just seen Hatebreed at This Is Hardcore Fest, so I didn't go. But That was such a, a good show. I didn't even know Hatebreed was going to be there. They didn't, uh, they didn't advertise it. Hmm. They said it was just Black Label and Anthrax. And we get there and Hatebreed opens and we're like, holy, it was actually me and John, John Hubs mm. from the lounge that went. And we're like, holy shit, we can't, we can't believe Hatebreed's here. But it was a phenomenal concert. Absolutely fantastic. And apparently now everything he's doing with Pantera is fantastic because he's using all of Dimebag Daryl's equipment. Mm, that's he, pretty cool. He's not using his. That's pretty cool. Like, he's using his guitar because he knows it. Yeah. But as far as, like, the amps and everything, he's using all dime bags. That's uh, that's a pretty cool connection to that spirit there. That's cool. So, the big question. How many concerts do you go to a year? Well, um, uh, I'm approaching 50. I'm 49. And I would say at this point I'm pretty selective. But uh, I don't know. Maybe somewhere between five and ten. Okay. A mix of bands that I'm associated with. Like I saw the Coffin Cats recently. Recently I saw Sheer Terror, who I also did a, a DVD and a live DVD at CBGB's and, and CD years ago. That was great. 
uh, Wisdom and Chains. Went to This Is Hardcore Fest in Philly, which is annual, like the best, biggest hardcore fest in the world. Joey Hardcore puts it on, old friend. Um, and there I saw Madball, I saw Hatebreed, I saw um, uh, Killing Time, an old favorite. Um, yeah, so probably around that. That's a I'm pretty mess. selective. But when I go, like, I'm a participant. Like, oh, I'm, yeah. I'm washing my fucking face off. Like, oh, yeah. Like, you know, like I, I want maybe to... getting older, but I, the, the strength and the heart and the spirit and the fucking. Oh, yeah. You know, I am a wholehearted believer that the people you meet at a metal concert are completely different than the people you meet at a pop concert. Oh, yeah. So there, I took there, a girl there, there, to there's go. There's a camaraderie. There's like yeah. this kinship there. There's a tribe element. I took a girl to go see Ed Sheeran. Great concert. Ed Sheeran is a phenomenal, phenomenal musician. I am all over the place with my musical tastes. I will listen to Dan. Educate Mir- me. I don't even know who the fuck Ed Sheeran is. So Ed Sheeran, he's like a pop acoustic artist. Okay. Nowadays. Performs on his own. Does solo stuff. Very cool guy. Yeah. His music is really good. Would I listen to it day to day? Not really. If so, if I'm at a party and somebody puts on Ed Sheeran, am I am I going to be butthurt? Absolutely not. Right. You tolerate a, it. It's okay, but you would never seek it out. Yeah. Great musician. I I took this girl for her birthday. I got her tickets. We went. We had a great time. Yeah. It was at the link. I had to be an asshole and be like, this looks nothing like a fucking Eagles game. <laughs> By the way, best fucking Instagram post I ever posted. I got like a hundred and some odd posts on it on my personal account. But... I went to that, and there was no, like, talking to the people near you. There was no yeah. camaraderie. You were isolated spectator. Yeah. Right. There was no going to get a beer. You talk to the guy behind you. Yeah. I go to a metal concert. I used to take the ferry across to Camden. Yeah. That's before I was a cop, and I got cop parking. But I used to take the ferry across to Camden. You're talking to people on the ferry in the line for the ferry. You wind up seeing them at the concert. They're all on the lawn. Yeah. Absolute fantastic. I still have contact with most of them. When we go to concerts, we meet up. Yeah. There's a guy I've known for 10 years. The only time I see him is at concerts. Dude, it's a You same, don't get yeah. that kind of camaraderie you don't. from any other kind of concert than a metal concert. Well, because there's a subcultural bond there that's just implicit, right? Like... Growing up in the hardcore punk scene, particularly the hardcore scene, right? Like, there is that there's that bond. Like, you go there and you see people that you really only see at shows, and you might know their name, you might know a little bit about them, but you already have this connection with them, whether it's in the pit or talking to them afterwards, because you know you're both connected to the music in a very visceral, real way, right? Like, I went to see Shelter, one of my uh, favorite all-time bands this uh, Harry Krishna hardcore band uh, singer Ray Capo his name's now Raghunath Capo as, as a Harry Krishna devotee was from Youth of Today so let me backtrack I said shout there I actually saw Youth of Today that's what it was it was the Youth of Today reunion show uh, that played recently and dudes I hadn't seen in tw- like 20 years but only saw at shows see there and it's just like instant like excitement celebrate and see each other camaraderie you know all getting older, we all have kids, everything else, but here we are still in the same hall to go see the same band yeah. that lights us up to share in that electric moment. You know? Yeah. Like, it's very special. And the metal's the same way. 
I, I kind of mentioned this um, on the podcast where I did the pairing between music and cigars. Mm. So the the Camden venue, whatever the fuck they're calling it now, I think it's Freedom Field or Freedom Pavilion, whatever. You could smoke on the lawn. And you smoke on the lawn, you wind up meeting even more people mm-hmm. than you would just as... <laughs> my man. That's um, that bottle. I need a little oh, another yeah. finger here. Yeah. It's good. It is. It's a good fucking bourbon. Not too sweet, just sweet enough. Like their regular bourbon's really good as well. Uh it's like uh Oh, what the hell is it? I think it's a four grain bourbon. It's very good. Yes, I you approve. Know, fuck it. I'm gonna top myself off too. There you go. Make that um, sound. There we go. Man, Tony still works, everybody. Absolutely fantastic bourbon. Um, but when you smoke a cigar at a metal show, you get even more camaraderie than if you're just at a cigar lounge and you're just in a metal show. Because now you're combining the two. You're intersecting subcultures. And when you have an intersection of exactly. subcultures, again, like this conversation here where we both have an interest in heavy music, interest in cigars... Uh, some other interests that align too, whether it's philosophical, potentially political, all those things. But stuff. Uh, easy, pal. I don't know about that. <laughs> That's one alignment I did. Anyhow. <laughs> but, you know, it's like when you combine those type of interests, particularly like subcultural interests that have a, a, a tribal element to them. And I don't mean like a negative tribal element, just like a positive right. tribal element. Like, there's nothing like it, man. It's just like the best. It it's just compounds everything. Yeah. A lot of that is... Uh Part of it, you get into this kind of group thing, kind of thing. Um, more so with concerts than you do lounges because yeah. a lot of lounges, they won't go out and do events um, unless they're like in, in lounge events, things yeah. of that nature. Yeah. What's up, Franz? Um, you know, you'll get things like this you know you walk into a lounge it's like cheers everybody yeah, fucking you're literally we're, we're observing this and listening to this in the background as you're explaining it describing it people yeah. walking in and greeting each other yeah uh, um you go to a concert because you go to a concert you may not recognize everybody but everybody welcomes you yeah that's right that's right um especially at like a metal concert or a punk concert yeah you know, you'll kick the shit out of each other in the mosh pit and there might be a few, a few bad apples there that might be instigators of uh, you know, some real I was at malevolent Ma- violence, but they get weeded out. Speaking of bad apples, I saw a confusing bad apple one time. I was at uh, Mayhem Fest back when Mayhem Fest was a thing. Mayhem Fest. And I vaguely like remember Mayhem Fest. 20... 2011, okay. 2012. Yeah. I was still in high school. And I saw a black white supremacist. Well, isn't that an ironic, fucked up, weird thing? Black dude, completely bald, shirtless, buff as shit. (laughs) Nazi tattoos all over him. Wow, that's fucking insane. I was so fucking confused. I'm like, but... (laughs) But, no, that's not right. (laughs) I was so confused. And a friend of mine at the time, he was mixed. Yeah. We called him Oreo. He was mixed. And this dude was giving him shit for being part black. It's like... Mirror anyone? Have, yeah, yeah, right. have you looked in a mirror 
dude, like, your black tattoos are lighter than you are. Well, that, I mean, you're naming that, and that's the one element that always, pretty much always gets combated and rooted out. You know, that's not tolerated, should not be tolerated. Nobody was near this guy. This and, guy tried uh, to get into a mosh pit, and he was just shut, he was shuttled out of the mosh pit. Yeah. I remember I went to see, uh, I went to see Dropkick Murphys and Rancid. That's a great, oh, I, I was probably there, yeah. And the. They were at the man, yeah, like two years ago. Okay, maybe a year ago. It was right st- after COVID happened. Did they get on stage together and um, do a cover of Johnny Cash "False Prison Blues"? Because yes. I saw that. That was absolutely fucking amazing. Oh my god, it was so good. I mean, that that's that's music porn right yeah. there to me. I remember getting in the mosh pit when Rancid was playing, and it was it was interesting because. Everybody was flailing around, pushing each other, shoving each other. And yet, in a mosh pit, as a metalhead, and as a punk rocker, you feel safe in a mosh pit. You fall down, somebody's going to pick you up. It's protected chaos. If you feel like shit going into the concert, you don't feel like shit coming out of the concert. Yeah. It's it's like getting that five-day Airbnb. Yeah. It's that reset. Yeah, no, that's right. Yeah, I mean, I actually I was on a podcast recently, um, the Chord Progression podcast, which is like a hardcore metal podcast, and we got into this discussion about the mosh pit itself. What is that energy, and how it's really like a metaphor for life, right? It's like finding that beauty and that chaos and camaraderie and chaos, and like allowing you to to like slipstream into to that energy, and, and use it to your advantage versus letting it like knock you down. And it's like. That's 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 the mosh pit, man. Like it's a yeah. perfect metaphor for handling the uncertainty and chaos of life. Like you find you got to find rhythm in the chaos. Yeah, you know? absolutely. And you're finding friends, and you're finding like cooperation, even you know. So, in addition to your your music, your your weightlifting, obviously your book. What other parts of your personality kind of define you? Um, yeah, so my tattoos are pretty important because they kind of are a tapestry of, you know, indelible symbols that represent my, my values or uh, my personality or my spirit. So, you know, some of them are, are more oriented towards faith or, or, or family or, um, you know, even patriotism um, or ideology or what have you. So tattoos have always been important to me. Like I knew even when I was like 12 years old, when I saw somebody with lots of tattoos, I was like, before tattoos were like accepted at all. Right. I was like, and this is a long time ago. Like I was like, I know that's going to be me. And it's been like a, a thoughtful, meticulous mapped out plan. I get them at kind of a reasonable cadence, two or three a year. I don't know how many I have. I got a lot of them. Um, and, I don't regret any of them, of course, and they all have a lot of meaning to me. Um, so that that's a pretty important piece. And, and that, like the book, like Failure Rules, you know, there's elements within my tattoo art on my body, just like a book. There's, there's something that points to almost every piece of my personality. Uh, but we talked about spirituality. That's a big part of it. Yeah. You know, I talk about non-attachment a lot in the book. 
uh, and whether you kind of embrace non-attachment from a, a Buddhist perspective or a Christian perspective or, you know, uh, ancient Jewish mystic perspective or even a non-faith stoic perspective, however you kind of adopt a non-attachment mentality, I have a great deal of respect for that. For me, it falls with the Christian framework. Um, you know, I'm not a churchgoer or anything, but, but the, the framework of Christianity works for me in terms of thinking through like the reconciliation between the imperfection of humanity and the perfection, you know, of a divine being. But uh, yeah, so for me, like non-attachment has been hugely important, particularly in dealing with failure. Just realizing like things crumble, things shift, things rearrange. Shit happens. Yeah, shit happens. Like, you know, you're, you, you don't have a soul. You are a soul. You have a body. Um, the externals are not ultimately what's important. Although you want to enjoy this world and maximize your engagement with the external world. Uh, but as those things shift and crumble, you can rebuild because you are a spirit. Like you have right. power. I mean, we're almost like in my mind, the creative power of human beings is, is subordinate to, to, uh, to God with, you know, a capital G, but we're like gods with lowercase G's, you know, with our, yeah. with our power. Right. And so I think that divinity lives within all of us. So that's another big kind of part of who I am and what my operating system is. Yeah. Like, um, I'm relatively early in my tattoo journey. I have four now. Mm. I, uh, I just recently got my fourth one at the Philadelphia tattoo convention. Oh, nice. Um, she did fantastic work. It's, uh, Nordic runes, uh, or like a Nordic rune compasses. Nice. With, uh, I think you ravens. showed me that. Yeah. That what you were to get before we went. Yeah. It's, uh, uh it's Vegvisir, Egeschlanger, and Hugen and Munin. That was very well pronounced. Very Thank good. you. Yes. So, in recent years, I've gotten really into Norse mythology. Nice. And I've read, like, the Poetic Eda, all the different Edas and everything. I've read all the Norse mythologies. Mm. Um, partly because I believe Viking culture is very interesting to me. Yeah, it is. Yeah. Um, another part is... It's got a lot of symbolism that I agree with um, that kind of conforms with my, my mind and my well-being yeah. and things of that nature. orientation. Yeah, yeah exactly. Um, so, Vegvasir acts as kind of a spiritual and a physical compass. What does that mean, Vegvasir? So, Vegvasir, uh, I don't know the exact translation, but Vegvasir is a compass. Okay. And it acts to guide you spiritually, mentally, physically to the path that you're meant to take. Gotcha. So it's um, almost like this internal spirit voice, right? It is. is it, yeah. It is. It is a Similar visual representation the yeah, yeah, yeah. of the spirit voice. Very cool. Very cool. And Egeschlanger, which they look kind of similar, but they're different. So Vegvasir, if you look at every branch, there's a total of like eight branches if you look at every branch, the end of every branch looks different. If you look at a Vegvisir, every branch is the exact same thing. Or, sorry, Egeschlanger, everything is the exact same thing. Vegvisir, everything is different. So for Egeschlanger, it's usually... Heterogeneous and homogeneous. Yeah. Too, yeah. Egeschlanger is usually put on shields, armor, some type 
sometimes tattooed on the body. And essentially what it's meant to do is instill fear upon the opponent. So it works basically the opposite of a dream catcher. Gotcha. So dream catchers takes the nightmares away. Agus Longer on your enemy. <laughs> gives you the nightmares on your enemy. And, you know, as a cop, you want the guidance. You want the lack of a better term. You want to put the fear in the crack hit. Yeah. Um, want, and then you want that protective uh, veil between you and, and harm's way. Yeah. And Hugin and Munin roughly translated means knowledge and wisdom. Mm. So Hugin and Munin in Norse mythology are Odin's eyes and ears on Midgard, which mm. is earth. And they kind of tell him everything important that's going on. It's nothing like, Hey, Andrew just got tuna fish sandwich for lunch. It's more like, Hey, China just invaded America for some fucking reason. Um, it's big things. Yes. But they which, are his. Which, I mean, that is that is consistent with the notions across religions. Yeah. Of divine communication yeah. with humanity. It's the big things. So yeah, yeah. Hugin and Munin are Odin's eyes and ears. They also stand for wisdom and knowledge. Mm. So I got those tattooed. To kind of help give me wisdom and knowledge depending on whatever situation I'm in. Yeah. And to kind of act as my eyes and ears. You know, I'm very big on... It's like the Norse guardian angel concept. It is. Yeah. It's... I'm very big on symbolism. Me too. So... Symbolism's powerful. My symbolism depends on everything that I have. Mm. Like, my first tattoo was a Cthulhu tattoo. And Cthulhu is one of the major... Characters created by H.P. Lovecraft. Hmm. For those of you who don't know, H.P. Lovecraft, kind of like a sci-fi Edgar Allan Poe. He was around in the uh, 1910s, 1920s. And he was very big on cosmic horror. And his big philosophy was, we, as a race, are insignificant. Very existential, very yeah. like... My being here has no fucking point, for lack of a better term. So border on nihilism a little bit. Yeah. More of like this metaphysical nihilism. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but a lot of his creations were from space. Yeah. They weren't malevolent. They didn't hate humanity. They didn't attack and kill humanity because they hated them. It was more like, oh... You guys are here. All right. Kind of like the way we look at ants. It's like, yeah, not bothering anybody. And I'll kill them anyway. Yeah, all right. Step Fuck on. it. I'll put a fucking magnifying glass on them. Yeah. It, it's that kind of thing. Yeah. Um, but I'm a big fan of literature. H.P. Lovecraft is my favorite, my mm. favorite author. My second favorite is Edgar Allan Poe. One of my next uh, tattoos is going to be a raven on the opposite shoulder. Oh, nice, nice. Um, I have uh, the American shield. Nice. Like the lines and the stars yeah. and everything. Yeah. And the Freemason square and compass. Nice. Because nice. I've been a Freemason for uh, five years now. Okay, wow, cool. Um, and 
a lot of the ritual involves going over the heart, so I got that over my heart. Nice. And I have this one I, I took a lot of pride in. Um, my grandmother and I were very close when she was alive. And I got Dracula's castle with a vampire bat above it and a rose below it mm. and her name and her birth and death year. So my grandmother was very into Halloween. She was very into horror. And whenever That's I slept over, whenever I went over to her house. Is that where you got your love of horror from hanging out with Grammy? Yeah. <laughs> Between her and my dad. That's cool. Um, we watched the Universal Horror movies. Bela Lugosi's Dracula, um, Boris Karloff's Frankenstein, uh, Abbott and Costello meet Frankenstein, The Mummy, The Wolfman, The mm -hmm. Invisible Man. Yeah. I grew up on those. And especially with Bela Lugosi's Dracula, I have a very good connection to that with my grandmother. Mm -hmm. So I got that whole That's scene. Cool. That's a cool tribute. Yeah. I got that whole scene tattooed on my calf. Yeah, nice. And it turned out fantastic. Yeah. That's awesome. But my next tattoo coming up is a St. Michael tattoo. Oh, nice. It's a all gray shield with a thin blue sword going down the center. Up top, it says, St. Michael, protect me. On the bottom, it has Isaiah 6, 8. Yeah. Rough, rough remembrance, because I don't remember the exact words. It yeah. says, uh, who will go for the people? Who will go for uh, the people who need to be defended? And it says, my Lord, send me. Yes. Nice. Very cool. And you know, I was raised Catholic. But that also aligns a little bit with your calling as a cop. It does. Putting yourself in harm's um, way on behalf of others and all of that. And it kind of puts in with... I was raised Catholic. Yeah. I kind of believe in Norse mythology. And I'm a Freemason. <laughs> no three of those go together. <laughs> well, they might, though. I'm sure you could find some, some dotted lines uh, um, somewhere. Right? But, even, even if they're in a subordinate hierarchy. Yeah. Well, part of it is I was in the chorus when I was a kid. I was in the school chorus. I'm still friends with the teacher of that today. He's a very good friend of mine. That's cool. If you ever need, like, a minor existential crisis. Need a minor existential, existential crisis. You okay. have your old teacher who you are now friends with tell you to call them by their first name. You mean if you encounter a minor existential crisis? Yeah. You never really need one, but yeah. you might need them in one. Right, I got you. You always <laughs> need an existential crisis. <laughs> Actually, there might be some truth to that, too. It's um, it, it might shape us just like failure rule number one, failure pure. But yeah. my, my old instructor, his name is Darren Williams. Wonderful man. Uh, I wholeheartedly believe he is one of the few people that helped shape me to who I am today. Hmm. Very he, cool. He kind of gave me that appreciation for music, and he gave me the appreciation for teaching things. Mm. So now I'm an FTO with my department. I'll be teaching the new guys coming in. And he gave me the joy of teaching. He gave me the joy of music in addition to my mom. My yeah. mom taught me how to play guitar. Yeah. She introduced me to playing bass, things of that nature. Nice. But Darren Williams... He was a big part of my childhood. He's Catholic. 
He's actually a Knights of Columbus. Mm, cool. Which, funnily enough, the old oath of the Knights of Columbus required you to murder any Freemason you met. So I asked him uh, to not uphold to that oath. <laughs> and, um, and to not target you, even if he did uphold that one. Yeah, right. But a big part of that St. Michael tattoo I'm getting is kind of half a tribute to him. That's pretty cool. Because, like I said, he was a big part of... A real influential in-person mentor growing he, up. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, you know, he was, he was my big mentor at school. Yeah. My, the way I like to say it is my mom was my, my big mentor for education and learning things by the book. My dad was the big mentor for learning things on the street. Yep. And outside the classroom. Yep. Like, I wasn't even a year old. My dad took me out fishing. Couldn't hold a pole for shit. But you know what? You know what I love doing now? Being out in nature. Yeah. Going fishing. Things of that nature. Yeah. And my mom, arguably one of the smartest people I know. You know, she's got her PhD in social work. She went to UC Davis for her undergrad. She went to Bryn Mawr for her master's mm. and her doctorate. She is now a teacher at Widener. Oh, that's cool. She basically recreated the entire doctoral program. She is revered in her field. One of the smartest people I know. My dad, the same way. One of the smartest people I know, but for different reasons. You know, my dad taught me a lot Sounds of... Sounds like they were complimentary... Uh, they were. Models, though. Very complimentary. Yeah. And my dad taught me everything I needed to know about being a cop. Yeah. And about being a man. Yeah. My mom taught me about everything I need to be about somebody to listen to. <laughs> because as a social worker... Meaning she taught you listening skills? Yes. So you now are a better listener because of your mom's yeah. model? So I go to domestic violence and mm, my that's mom... important, right. My yeah, mom yeah, kind of yeah, pops yeah, in yeah. and she's like, okay, social worker mode. Let's yeah. fucking go. Whereas I got a crackhead who who's running from me. My dad pops Channel in. He's and like, pops on that one. Yeah, <laughs> my a crackhead starts running from me, and my dad, the dad part in me, starts going off and is like, yeah. "Oh, let's fucking party. Let's go." Yeah. So, and it's nice because between the two of those, I got a very good upbringing from them, mm. both educationally and practically. Yeah. Um, and I got a lot of my, my humor and my pranks from them as well. Nice. Like nice. my mom brought a cow into her dorm. No, I'm sorry. Her downstairs male roommates brought a cow into her dorm bathroom. So she went next door to the cow farm. She helped facilitate. And got buckets of manure and stuffed them <laughs> under all the fucking doors of oh the boys' rooms. And left a note. Your cow left some shit. <laughs> so I get a lot from her. I get a lot from my dad. And my cigar aspect of things, I get from my dad. Yeah. You know, the, my dad's joke is, you know, I taught you how to cut and light a cigar. And now you're all the way over here doing reviews and a podcast. You work at a shop. You're yeah. doing all this shit. What does he think of all that? He's very excited about it. He's also, um, he's kind of enthralled with it. That's cool. Because it's one of those things where, holy shit, this is getting kind of big. Yeah. 
And I'm thinking the same way. Like, Great Cigars started as this little bullshit Instagram page. And now it's got a podcast. It's got an online shop. It's got a website. And the, the patch membership is now worldwide. Wow. I have people in U.S., Mexico, Puerto Rico, Australia, Italy, England, Japan, all over the fucking place. Way farther than I thought it was going to go. Yeah. It's, it's amazing. Insane. Yeah. And I have to imagine it's the same for your book. Like, yeah, out- international sales. People posted pictures from yeah, the out- know, Portugal or Australia. Yeah. And uh, just the idea of somebody consuming something you created and you never met them. And then if they're even farther away, it just seems even more cool. Uh, and particularly if they have any sort of direct feedback on how it affected them or how they enjoy it, it's there's nothing like it. It's a great yeah. pleasure. It it, it kind of gives you a a connection to that country, yeah, or a connection to that person, yeah. So now, if you ever go over there, it'd be so fucking cool. You go over to like England, yeah. You go into a pub. You go into a cigar shop over there. You sit down. You smoke a cigar. Somebody looks over and you're like, holy shit, that's Andrew King. <laughs> that happened to me down in Texas. No shit, really? So I went down to Texas for Drew Estate's bar, uh, Savage Feast. Yeah. Which was supposed to come out two years ago as their DE25 celebration. 25th anniversary. COVID fucked that whole shit up. So they came out with Savage Feast. I get a ticket. Me and my buddy Frank, who owns Sheepdog Production, we go down. I'm at the pre-party on Friday night before the actual event on Saturday. I'm at the pre-party, pre-party on Friday night. And people are coming up to me. They're like, holy shit, you're great cigars. Because I, <laughs> I have a battle vest. Mm-hmm. Same thing you wear to a metal concert. Or I've a seen punk the battle concert. vest. Yeah, 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 yeah. So I have one yeah. for concerts and I have one for cigars. Nice. I have a custom rocker or custom rockers for my cigar vest, custom rockers for my my uh, my metal vest, and I have all these different cigar patches sewn onto this yeah. this vest. Yeah. I wear it to the pre party, and I wear my my uh, I got a custom Great Cigars work shirt for events. I nice. wear that the next day. So I'm wearing this vest. People are coming up to me. They're like, holy shit. It's, it's fucking great cigars. So I got guys coming up to me. They got they have these small cigar companies. They're like, hey, can you review this? I'm like, yeah. okay. I come home. My parents are like, hey, how was Texas? I'm like, I had 15 people come up to me and tell me that they know me from Instagram or whatever. I see this dude. He's on the other side of the table. He's got this fucking top hat and shit. I'm like, hey, dude, you might need a patch. <laughs> so he's got he's got this full vest, similar to mine. He's got a full vest. Great dude. He is now a big member of Great Cigars. He's posted on the the uh, private page all the time. Nice. He's got this top hat. This motherfucker puts a patch in his top hat and is wearing it <laughs> the entire time. Damn near every post, he's got this patch on it. And he's a great dude. I wind up getting so many connections down there 
Now, Great Cigars has grown even more. I'm bordering on 25, 3,000 followers. Nice. On Instagram. Wait, how many? Between 2,500 and 3,000. Yeah, that's great. Awesome. Um, mind you, it started as this little bullshit Instagram yeah. page with like seven followers. Yeah. And now it's here. And it, 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 it went way past what I expected it to. You're just getting started. Yeah. I mean, now the podcast is expanding. You're doing different types of episodes. Yeah. Got well, a, get, I, got a guest now. And- I recently looked at the. Uh, I recently looked at like the listenership. Yeah. And where my podcast is popular, America and England are two of the biggest. Sure. America's yeah. like ninety nine percent. England's How about like Canada. Canada's up there. Yeah. But Indonesia. Two <laughs> percent. Yeah. Fucking Indonesia. Yeah. I don't have anybody in Indonesia, but they're listening to my podcast. Yeah, I, I got sales in Germany, sales in India. Oh, yeah. Yeah. It's, uh, it's wild. But your your book, the message you've put out, um, the person that you are, like knowing you personally, the person you are. The book you put out, your professional nature, everything you've done. It's all been fantastic. It puts a great imprint on society and a great imprint on the music culture, the cigar mm. culture, um, the weightlifting culture, the tattoo culture. My question for you is. Yes. Everything you've done, everything you've written in this book, do you have any regrets? Do I have regrets? Regrets. Not regrets. Do you have any regrets? Yes. Um, well, it's touched on in the book, and it's a little personal. But, uh, you know, I was married for 14 years to my, my first wife, who I have three kids with. And um, that marriage failed for a variety of reasons, many circumstantial, others interpersonal. But looking back at who I was in my 20s and my 30s, and this is probably many people who are older think this, I really wish I had the wisdom I have now. I might have been a different person, may or may not have saved the marriage. We were probably incompatible anyway. But there's part of me that regrets not having enough emotional intelligence and wisdom back then, uh, particularly around how to handle failure. It might have made the home life better, particularly for um, my my, my oldest, my son, um, you know, it was tough on him, uh, the divorce that I went through. And so I think that's probably my only regret, and mostly because I think I, I wish that things have been would have been a little different to uh, make my son's life a little better uh, at this point. So, so little 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 a little personal there, but that that would probably be my my biggest regret. So with all that and everything you've done now. Do you think if you could go back in time and fix everything, knowing what you know now, do you think it would have changed what you've done as far as your personal and professional relationships leading up to now, the book, um, who you know, your, your presence in social media, your presence in the world? Do you think if you went back and changed everything, would it change who you are now? It could, and for that reason, I wouldn't want to touch it. I feel like, you know, the complexity and the mystery of, of the 
because of this then that path most of it happened by design far beyond my understanding and I don't want to fuck with it yeah <laughs> that's See, how I'm, I would say I'm the same way people come up to me and they're at, they ask me like you know what if this happened you got in the police academy on your second try or your first try yeah as opposed to your seventh what would have happened if you stayed with that girl yeah um because when the split happened I was mm. I had an engagement ring on yeah. on on the mind I was ready and you know they asked me if you could go back in time and change anything would you I said absolutely fucking not no yeah because if that shit didn't happen I wouldn't be the man who I am today that's right for hell all I know I wouldn't have met you yeah I wouldn't have met Rami I wouldn't have met Dave anybody everything that went on in my past I don't I don't regret a fucking thing yeah because if any of that changes none of this would happen agreed I mean (laughs) some of the most difficult, scary, and um, just in some ways devastating events in my life ended up feeding into this narrative in this book that is, to me, one of the most meaningful, um, beautiful, you know, um, representations of my life and uh, the things that I've learned and contains so much value that is now making my life so rich and, you know, full of prosperity and it's flourishing. And I, I just wouldn't, I wouldn't change it. Yeah. I'm, I'm the same way. Um, you know, if you take some of the pop culture people, you take Luke Skywalker, you take Harry Potter, um, you take anybody you take Tony Stark from the Avengers. If they changed even something small, they wouldn't be the, the legends they are today. Granted, they're fictional characters. Or non-fictional characters like David Goggins, similar kind exa- of art. Or Lemmy Kilmister. Yeah. Or Angus Young. Yeah. You take those guys. If they change one minor thing, they could be completely different people. That's right. You know, Angus could be a fucking accountant. <laughs> Lemmy Kilmister might still be alive, but he wouldn't be <laughs> Lemmy Kilmister. He'd right. be Ian Kilmister from H and H Realty. That would be fucked up. That's oh my god! Can you imagine <laughs> Lemmy as a fucking realtor? Um, but you take every experience you have, you put it into the personality and the persona you have now. I wouldn't change a fucking thing. I'm with you, man. 100%. I I not only own it, I'm grateful for it. And, uh, you know, it's going to evolve over time even more. It's going to be a more complex tapestry in 10 years uh, than it is now. But the amalgamation of uh, my disparate experiences and interests uh, and, um, you know, the ideas that have informed my decisions... It all comes under this umbrella of this book, Failure Rules, and now it, it, it somehow makes sense. Like it, putting it on paper, it ties it all together where it all becomes even more clear um, the value of 
certain events and how they led to other things and tied together and pulled things together. And uh, that's the mystery of like really stepping out and embracing your calling journey and getting out of your safety zones. Yeah. Yeah, 100%. So, well, Andrew, I have really enjoyed this time. I have very much enjoyed this interview. Uh, we are going to go and indulge in some more debauchery. I think we are. <laughs> um, but I very much enjoyed having you on the podcast. I'm glad we got to do this interview. Spotlight your book. Spotlight your story. Thank you. And, uh, you know, maybe in the future we'll have you on again. I would love that. This was a blast. Great conversation. Free-flowing. Wide-ranging. All, uh, you know, spoken with uh, long ashes abiding by us. Long ashes, full glasses. And uh, nothing like uh, nothing like the Brothers of the Leaf, man. This was great. And yep. uh, for those of you listening, go buy Failure Rules, the five rules of failure for entrepreneurs, creatives, and authentics anywhere books are consumed online. Check out my website, Andrew Thorpe King. No E on the end at Thorpe. Uh, you can get a Failure Rules free mini course there. Find merch for Soul and Fire Supply Company and all kinds of other good stuff. Yep. So, Andrew, like I said, very good friend of mine. Fantastic author of Failure Rules. Make sure you go check them out. Everything is going to be down in the show notes for you. And again, thank you for being on the podcast. I very much appreciate My it. My pleasure. Thanks, Jimmy Boy. So, without further ado. That about wraps it up. Keep an eye out for news. Keep an eye out for reviews. And stay fucking smoky.